0: Uh, Professor Michael Gerard, Columbia University. Do we say Sabin? Sabin. 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 Okay. Right. So Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, which you founded. That's right. Uh, you're also the author of, I believe, or editor of 13 books That's on right. climate change law. That's right. <laughs> I'm looking at such a collection here in your office. Right. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, we're here to talk about climate change law and where we're going with that. Um, and look, such a pleasure. Uh, for me, it is a departure from a lot of my usual fare. I'm concentrating on the science of climate change and technology solutions, but it seems that litigation and legal pathways uh, could potentially play as much or an even more important role in changing our behaviors. And that's what I really wanted to explore with you today. Um, Uh, Starting with a premise I guess I saw on your website, which is, can can lawyers save the planet? How big a role can lawyers play?
1: Well, not on our own, we can't save the planet, of course, but in many other ways we can. And lawyers do several things. We litigate, we write the laws and regulations, and we handle transactions. And all three of those have their own important roles to play and different roles in different places. Ideally, we would have Um, the U.S. Congress and the parliaments all around the world adopt very strong climate change laws. That would be the best approach. Um, Almost no countries have done that. Uh, The United States had not passed a major new environmental law since 1990 until August of 2022 when Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which was all carrots, no sticks. It It threw a huge amount of money at clean energy, but adopted uh, almost no new regulatory programs uh, and stayed away from um, many of the techniques that economists and policy analysts and so forth said would be most effective, like a carbon tax. But it is throwing a huge amount of money at clean energy. Hopefully it will be spent and spent well. Mm. We'll see in the the years to come. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the regulatory side of it. Uh, that's
1: the legislative side. Oh, the legislative it. side of it. Probably. That's right. And on the on the regulatory side, um, several years ago, another law professor and I, John Dernbach and I, um, put together a very large book called "Legal Pathways <laughs> oh, to Deep Decarbonization in the United yeah. States." Yes, yeah. um, about twelve hundred pages, more than a thousand specific recommendations for federal, and state and local action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Following from that, we've set up a project called the Model Laws for Deep Decarbonization Project where we've recruited several dozen law firms, all working pro bono, to draft the model laws that are recommended by the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these cover a broad array of moving to clean energy, having more energy conservation, uh, carbon dioxide removal, and these are being drafted and we're hoping that state legislatures and city councils will will adopt them so that's another important role that lawyers can play
0: how uh what sort of reaction are you getting out of governments to what you're doing so far with that?
1: our reaction is they love the theory but they are not uh, moving as quickly to adopt the rules as we had hoped um, there are powerful economic interests that are pushing back against any regulations that will constrain their ability to act. Mm. Um, there's uh, a great deal of uh, of support for voluntary actions, but the, the, as soon as you begin to tell companies what they have to do or requirement, require governments to spend a lot of money, there's mm-hmm. a lot of pushback.
0: Mm-hmm. And does it also expose governments to their own or add exposure to themselves by signing up to that? Because it forces puts them in a position where they have to act or be in contravention of their own legislation, does it not?
1: Well, it, the, the governments don't have liability in the mm. sense that, that, that because of the doctrine of sovereign immunity, they can't be held financially liable. Um, but if they adopt binding laws, those can be enforced in court if yeah. they're written in the right way. And, and yeah. governments as well as companies are reluctant to allow that to happen.
0: Yeah. And what about lawsuits under existing law? environmental law. They're on the up. We see them doubling and redoubling out there in the world.
1: Uh, yeah, we, we track all of the climate change uh, lawsuits in the world. Uh, we've found about 2,000 uh, around the world, of which uh, 72% are in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is by far the champion, but uh, not all of those are really pro-environmental. Many of them are lawsuits brought by industry-challenging regulations. Uh Um, So in the U.S., the the most important, the most consequential litigation has been against governments for not uh, following existing law. So, So the most important U.S. case was Massachusetts versus EPA from 2007, in which the Supreme Court said that the Clean Air Act authorized the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. The president at the time, George W. Bush, said it it didn't. Uh, The Supreme Court said that it did. President Obama then used that authority to adopt uh, a series of regulations. So that was a very important uh, lawsuit. Under former President Trump, The administration tried to cut back and to uh, weaken many of the environmental regulations. Mm. The courts played a very important role there in saying he had gone too far. He hadn't followed the the necessary regulations. So the courts were very important there. The courts have also been important in the U.S. in stopping the construction of coal-fired power plants and pipelines and other fossil fuel projects because they violated some environmental laws. Yeah, What the U.S. courts have not done is to uh, use other, the sorts of theories that are being successful in other parts of the world, human rights theories, constitutional theories, and others. We've seen tremendous success in some other countries um, in use of those theories. The, the most prominent and one of the first was the Urgenda case in the Netherlands, where yeah. the Supreme Court of the Netherlands... Uh, said that under human rights theories and other doctrines, the government had to force a very significant reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. We've seen successes in similar theories in, uh, in Germany, France, Nepal, Brazil, um, and, the Netherlands, and a number of other countries. So yeah. around the world, yeah. Yeah. it's having some success. Yeah. Uh, but the the U.S. courts have not been sympathetic to that kind of theory. And the U.S. Supreme Court, with a six to three conservative majority, uh, gives us little hope that this will succeed in the U.S., Mm -hmm. uh, at least at the federal level for years to come.
0: So in the U.S., would it be fair to say that the most uh, profitable pathways forward, if you're going to think about the role of litigation in climate change, uh, not at that federal level, but perhaps at a more localised level on a corporation by corporation level, suing an individual corporation for um, the damages caused to a particular city, like Miami, for example, which is facing enormous consequential costs. Would that be a more profitable way of uh, forward
1: we don't point. know yet. There are about 25 lawsuits in the U.S. that have been brought, mostly by cities and states, yeah. against fossil fuel companies. Um, they've all been held up on the question of whether they belong in federal court or state court. Uh, for various reasons, the plaintiffs all want to be in state court. The defendant oil companies want to, all want to be in federal court. Okay. Um, this question has now been presented to, in a case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will decide in the next few months whether to take the case. If it takes the case, we'll probably have a decision sometime in the spring. Uh, Meanwhile, I think all these cases are likely to be put on hold until the Supreme Court decides. So if the Supreme Court doesn't take the case and allows these cases to proceed in state court, we'll see a lot of activity, but if they have to stay in, in federal court, there's also a decent chance the Supreme Court will use various doctrines to say they're no good and throw them out. Yeah. But we'll know in the next several months.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. So a lot of people, a lot of the... uh, uh um, litigants or is it the judges that choose to just to hold off because a precedent's about to be set um,
1: yeah i think the uh, the defendants will they already have asked the judges around the country to hold off on yeah. these lawsuits until we hear from the supreme court mm-hmm. and it's easier for a judge to hold off on making a decision than to make a decision so mm-hmm. we'll mm-hmm. see what happens with that they, They're uh, they are maybe some progress in some states under the state constitutions. So there's a trial that has been scheduled for next July in state court in Montana in a lawsuit brought by a number of young people under the state constitution of Montana saying that the state government needs to move away from its fossil fuel-friendly policies uh, toward clean energy. So it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, Several states have constitutional uh, rights to a clean environment in their state constitutions. New York adopted one just last November uh, by a vote of two to one. The voters of New York adopted a constitutional right to a clean environment in New York State. No one knows just what that means. Yeah, that'll be uh, the subject of many lawsuits, and, and we'll we'll find out.
0: <laughs> so one of the things here is time. There's so many rearguard actions and delaying tactics available as we appeal and then appeal again, just in the location or the jurisdiction for which the trial is to be held, and that's multiple years, even in that process. That's right.
1: This new round of litigation began in 2017. So five years later, we still don't know whether they belong in state court or federal court.
0: Yeah. Yeah. From what I know about um, the law, you know, this this is almost a default tactic. If you wish to sort of, if you've got more money, if you're a big corporation, delay, delay, delay as long as you can. That would be a standard response. I mean, oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, with with a good deal of success. And there are a lot of excellent lawyers on both sides of these cases. <laughs> uh, so they go on a long time. Yeah. So
0: the challenge also seems to me partly, on the, uh, partly around, um, uh, if we're looking at damages, we're suing for damages which have not yet happened. Some of them have happened. But is it fair to say that a lot of the um, litigation is about future damages?
1: Well, actually, um, these kinds of cases are seeking money for adaptation to the climate change that is happening and that is coming. It's to allow the cities to build seawalls or elevate buildings or fix their infrastructure or take other actions in order to prepare for and guard against the um, climate change yeah. damages that are coming as opposed to the uh, what we think of conventionally as, as money damages for injuries already suffered. And there have, there have been no successful lawsuits anywhere in the world so far um, uh, getting money damages from fossil fuel companies. Uh, there is a case That's pending okay. in Germany brought by a farmer in Peru who says that his farm is being damaged by the melting of the glaciers, uh, and that um, 0.5% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere came from a big German utility, RWE, so he's suing RWE for 0.5% of his losses in his farm because of their emissions. Interesting. So that case is going forward. It survived initial motions. The judges from Germany just traveled to Peru to see the glaciers. They planned to do it a couple of years ago, but they were delayed by the pandemic. But now they've gotten there and we'll see, we'll see what they say. That's the case that has gone the furthest, uh, seeking money damages.
0: So, going back to that, what you just said a second ago, though, none have actually been successful in awarding damages, by, uh, existing damages today. None That's right. Them. Yeah, okay. It's early days, isn't it, in this whole, whole process?
1: It, it, uh, and we don't know whether they will succeed. We'll see what happens in the U.S. We'll see yeah. what happens in this Peruvian case against the German uh, uh, company. There has been much more success in orders of uh, requiring governments to require reductions in greenhouse gas emissions within their countries. And there's an important case pending in the Netherlands uh, where the trial court told Shell Oil uh, to reduce its emissions. That's now under appeal. We'll see how that goes.
0: Yeah, another sort of time delay thing. But consequences are a big word in this. And, And the first one that does award damages will probably have quite an impact because it becomes real, it becomes monetary. Uh, and, and tangible for, for corporations or governments or whoever's being, being sued. Would that be... Yes,
1: uh, yeah. just as the Dutch case, the agenda case that required the government to reduce emissions had a global impact and inspired many lawsuits around the world. Mm. If any of these cases for money damages succeed, mm. um, that will also have a big impact. It's also making a lot of companies and financial institutions nervous. And we hear from all the time from mm. insurance companies and and, and and banks trying to assess what is the litigation risk. What is the risk that uh, the people we insure or finance are going to have, be held financially liable for climate change? So and yeah. the short answer is we don't know because nobody has yet. Yeah. Uh, but if somebody does uh, become liable, then uh, that then has a big effect on... The financial system and trying to make sure that their borrowers or their insurance do what they can to lower their liability by reducing their contribution to climate change. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly the same thing happened couple of decades ago with hazardous waste. Uh, laws were passed um, uh, imposing liability on companies that had anything to do with hazardous waste. As a direct result of that, we have much less hazardous waste being generated now and much greater care being exercised in handling the waste that is still generated because of this liability fear.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can I ask you to Sort of look into the crystal ball a little bit and get speculative, which is probably not professionally comfortable for someone uh, in in the law. But just thinking forward, are there? Um, do you see this going through various phases? What do you think the next ten years looks like uh, in terms of global litigation, the successes that first precedent, or what could it look like um, if things went well?
1: Um, so, as we know, the governments of the world have uniformly failed to take adequate action on climate change, uh, both at the administrative level and the legislative level. Uh, So uh, people use every tool they can find, and the courts are one of those tools. I see an increasing volume of lawsuits brought. There are many lawyers around the world who are working on that, who are trying to come up with new theories for lawsuits. So I think we'll see a lot more of these lawsuits brought. We're seeing that. Uh, Some judges are very sympathetic to these lawsuits. Other judges are not. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the sympathetic judges are beginning to issue strong opinions. Mm -hmm. Uh, as, uh, As the years go by and more of these judges themselves are pressured by their children or grandchildren, uh, uh, are taking climate change more seriously. I think we may see more decisions in more countries around the world that do require stronger action on climate change. So I think that lawsuits will play an increasing role in the fight against climate change. They are not going to be the most important solution, but they are one important element uh, moving in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. So the way I'm sort of picturing it is almost like a pressure cooker. You know, we're getting through legal channels. We're building the pressure in many places at many levels. And at certain points, the financials around that pressure, the risk around that, from the underwriters and insurers and various people in supply chains just gets to the point where behaviors start to change from a purely uh, an exposure perspective, a legal exposure perspective. That a- uh,
1: yes, I think that's a fair way to put it. Another thing I would say is that so far, one effect of, of the pressure on companies is that they make pledges, they make promises, but we know that much of this is greenwashing. Yeah. You know, saying that. Um, a company is going to uh, have net zero by 2050. Uh, I could say that I'm promised to lose 30 pounds by 2040. Okay, <laughs> what does that mean? So, so we have many of these, um, um, these fairly meaningless pledges. And another growing uh, kind of lawsuit is lawsuits challenging the greenwashing, tra- challenging the deception by some about. of these companies. Uh, and so uh, we have several of those pending in the in the U.S. None of them have pr- pr- progressed very far, but but they're new. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing it uh, elsewhere in the world. Several of these greenwashing lawsuits have been brought against airlines, against auto companies, against grocery store chains, mm. um, s- uh, saying that if a company is making a promise, it has to carry it out, and it has to demonstrate on a stepwise basis, how it's going to do it. And they have to show that their corporate executives uh, have their compensation as key to fulfilling these promises and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so this pressure is coming from from lots of lots of places.
0: Yeah. One that particularly inspires me is also when you look at shareholders taking action. Uh, it doesn't have to be legal action. Uh, it can be just removing board members and you know, there's personal consequences there. but. Uh, on the basis that future earnings are being imperiled by this uh, uh, lack of action uh, from from a board. And, and it seems that class action lawsuits would be, from an investor perspective, would be a possibility as well.
1: Well, it, this is another area where it's hard to sue over future damages. Yeah. Um, there have only been um, a few lawsuits against um, companies by shareholders on these theories. None of them have um progress very far, we have seen some successful shareholder actions. Uh, three members of the board of Exxon were replaced by this yeah. insurgent group. We have not yet seen a change in exxon's actual behavior <laughs> as a result of that we'll we'll see what happens but Exxon is certainly not getting out of the oil and gas business yeah um, uh, but all of this is certainly putting pressure on lots of different companies and and also encouraging um you know, clean energy companies to to go forward. Okay, um,
0: yeah, that's the key though. Behavioral change. Um, so gradual. It's a gradual process here. All over. Uh, and
1: and the danger is that it's too gradual uh, because we've we're running out of time. Arguably, we have run out of time, and we need to have the transition as quickly as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, would there be any messages you would add? You know, to the sort of people that I reach. They're business people generally, but also government people all around the world. A lot of them are not specialists in law. Um, are there things that you feel people should know that, uh, or misconceptions out there about the role of litigation in climate change? Well,
1: I think that there are many different legal strands that are all pushing in the direction of clean energy. Mm-hmm. I think the um, uh, there are energy efficiency laws, there are laws on uh, requiring electric utilities to provide a certain amount of their electricity from clean sources, an increasing amount of electricity, this new Inflation Reduction Act from the U.S. putting hundreds of billions of dollars into clean energy, other actions yeah. elsewhere in the world, um, the pressure on uh, financial institutions, the holding companies to the pledges that they make, uh, all the the vulnerability that fossil fuel operations like pipelines and power plants have to the intense litigation they all face, Mm. all this adds up uh, to significant pressure to uh, move toward clean energy and Mm. to try to reduce the amount of energy we consume. Mm.
0: Mm. So just to close us out, um, on a more personal note, can you tell me a little bit about how you got to where you've got, because you've now so focused on this particular area, um, what was your personal journey to this to this? Point?
1: Well, I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, which is a town dominated by the petrochemical industry. So we had uh, very high levels of air pollution and water pollution when I was a kid. Um, I came to New York to go to college, but wrote my senior thesis on the politics of air pollution. I was here in college in the first Earth Day back in 1970 and became interested <laughs> really? in the, uh, I covered the first Earth Day for the Columbia Daily Spectator when I was a student journalist. Um, And um, I worked for an environmental group after I graduated from college and saw that some of the most effective work was being done by lawyers, so I decided to become an environmental lawyer. I entered Mm -hmm. law school back in 1975 to become an environmental lawyer. Um,
0: So from the outset, when you entered law, that was where you wanted to be?
1: That's right. Um, But in the late 70s and 80s, when I was a starting lawyer, most of uh, environmental law practice was about air pollution and water pollution and and waste disposal. By the late 80s, a lot of scientists were trying to sound the alarm about climate change. Mm. But most environmental lawyers, including me, weren't paying attention. Uh, By the early 2000s... um, um, more attention was being paid i started focusing on it i um, edited a book called global climate change in u.s law mm-hmm. uh, which was published in 2007 the first u.s book on the subject and decided i really wanted to devote myself to uh, to fighting climate change mm-hmm. and uh, the opportunity unexpectedly arose to become a law professor at columbia and found a center on climate change law so mm-hmm. i made that move in 2009 and so since 2009 that has been my focus can I add one other thought that if you can mention um, I now have two little grandchildren one mm-hmm. born in 2018 one born in 2020 they should both still be around in 2100 and I worry deeply about what kind of world they will grow into mm-hmm. that's additional inspiration for me to work on climate change
0: yeah yeah, absolutely. It changes us, doesn't it? Once that's we right. look at the children and the grandchildren, that's right. It changes everything.
1: So I won't be around for the worst of it, but yeah. they might be.
0: Maybe we could legislate that everyone has to have children in high places, so they have a vested interest in. But the not future But not too
1: as well. many, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> no,
0: no. Wow. Well, that is uh, a very inspiring story. I keep coming across in the science community. People have dedicated their professional lives to one cause, and uh, I find that. Um, inspiring and I try and share those stories with my audiences on that basis but I think I've found another inspirational story in a whole different field and uh, one that matters just as much so um, Professor Michael Girard thank you for your time and thank you for making time to see us on our travels uh, and I will do my best to share your messages with my audience as well.
1: My pleasure to be with you. Right. Excellent
0: thank you.